morning and greetings to everyone who has tuned in today. It's a beautiful morning. I trust you are also experiencing the beauty of it. God is good in all the times that we have to go through. It would be nice if this was not a cliche for most of us. God is actually good. The fact that you and I are able to sit in our homes, do the things we need to do, to top it all, the fact that we are alive, God is good. The book of Ecclesiastes says something that is worth remembering. It says, for as long as you are alive, there is hope. It says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. So all our potential, all our dreams, all our failures, successes, and they come to naught for, the, for their relevance in this life when we die. So for the fact that you and I are not dead, God is good. So we must rejoice and give him the due praise. I trust with your family, yourself, friends, you've been connecting, um, encouraging one another, stirring one another into good works, stirring one another to keep trusting God. And let's keep preaching hope, let's keep preaching faith, let's encourage, let's look out for one another. Let's, let's look out for our neighbors, for our families, our siblings. Let's not allow ourselves because of what we may be individually or as families, as marriages, what we may be going through. Let's not allow ourselves to forget that we are blessed to be a blessing. We, in this world, we are as good as we are good to others. Our goodness, you know, we say God is good. He's good inherently in himself. And he's good because he's good to us too. And so we are also good, but our goodness will be recognized, identified, experienced when we become good to other people. So let's be good. Pick up a phone, call someone, you know, send a message. It's a humane thing to do, you know, greet someone, ask someone, hey, how are you doing? I was just checking up on you. You know, let's not allow our humanity and humaneness to fade in the midst of trials and tribulations. Let's allow, whether it is in a time of celebration or it is in a time of trial and tribulation, let's allow our humaneness to come through. Let people know that there are still good people out there. Just wanted to encourage you to remember to be good to others as much as you are good to yourself. Today I want us to talk about the assurance of salvation. I don't know if you've ever had a, a sense in which you feel inadequate. 
I know in prayer, many of us have had that sense in prayer. That you pray, you pray, you're getting into it, but you feel like your prayers are just hitting the ceiling and bouncing back to you. Be carried into your own sense of being born again. That you end up wondering, am I really being, uh, uh, am I really born again? Sometimes it's not just your thoughts. Sometimes it's actually what the devil attacks you with because he wants to condemn you. He wants you to feel, you know, inadequate and unworthy. But also, I want to talk to, to someone who's not born again, you know, that there is an assurance. Sometimes people want to jump through hoops to get born again. If you, you tell someone, you must be born again. You know, Jesus tells, tells Nicodemus, he puts it straight. He says, unless you are born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. And then he, he reiterates, do not be surprised that I say to you, you must be born again. And, and people have, sometimes it's excuses. Sometimes it's ignorance. No, you see... I'm still young, I'll be born again when I'm old. You don't have tomorrow that you are certain of. No, you know, I'm too messed up. You know, my life, it's a mess. That's why the Savior came. You are messed up. I'm messed up. So we need someone who's not messed up to clean our mess. And others have uh, materialistic objections to being born again. No, I don't need God. I don't... One day you will discover that your money, your education, whatever you think, you know, values you above other people, whatever you, you think will sustain your life. All these things, in the face of death one day, they'll come to not nothing. And so there shouldn't be any excuse for not being born again, you know, unless people are sincerely saying, I want to serve the devil and I want to die and it, I want it to be my choice that I go to hell. Well, I respect that. But there are others who actually don't know that there is an assurance for salvation. So they, that's what I want us to primarily focus on today. So we're reading today from the book of Romans, chapter 10. We're taking it from verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I want us to, to just pack here in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Two things. If you confess and you believe. Many people believe in the death of Jesus Christ, 
but give no consent to the fact that the Bible also says you must believe that he was raised from the dead. Um, in the, last week we spoke about resurrection money. That resurrection is a tenet of our faith. It is a foundation. You cannot just believe that Jesus died. You must believe that he, he rose again. And salvation, remember we're speaking about the assurance of salvation. Salvation has become a way that is associated with churches, pastors, and altar calls. People believe that for me to be saved, there must be a pastor. I must go to church or someone must make an altar call. I must go to the front. Yet when, where we read in verse 9, the requirement of salvation mentions none of the above. Yes, all these things are important, but they are not prerequisite. What, is, what are the prerequisite, prerequisite of being saved? Believe your heart, confess with your mouth. Let's read further. Taking it again from verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you will believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you, you, you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So you have your heart where you are. You have your mouth where you are. So you don't need to be a church. You don't need to, uh, to be in some divine place. You need to have your heart believing and your mouth confessing. And those are the premises I want us to, to, to move from. And obviously for, for someone to be saved, there are points of departure. There must be an acknowledgement of certain things for you to be saved. So let's call those the premises of salvation. So for salvation to happen, we know that you must confess the Lord with your mouth and believe in your heart. But what forms the foundation of your believing and your confessing? Number one, you need to, to believe to come to an acknowledgement and understanding that all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. That is what Romans tells us. It tells us that every one of us has sinned. You know, Adam sinned. And if you tells us that in Adam, we sinned, so sin entered the earth through Adam. And so death was passed on to everyone who did not even sin as Adam sinned. Romans 5.14 tells us, it says, 
But from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, everyone had to die. Adam died because he sinned by not obeying God's command. But even those who did not sin the same way as Adam, they had to die. That one man, Adam, can be compared to Christ, the one who was, who's coming in the, in, in, in the future. So now, we have sinned, and someone can say, yeah, but Adam sinned. Okay, fine. Let's set aside the fact that Adam sinned and we inherited his sin. Let's talk about you and I in our current state. Have we not sinned by our own choice? Have we not disobeyed God? We have. And we can argue all we want, but nobody has put us under duress to do the wrong things we do. Nobody says we must lie, we must steal, we must do the things we do. We do them because we enjoy them. That's why the Bible sometimes say, uh, it, it says, when we are tempted, we are tempted because of the things that are pleasurable to us. Sometimes we are tempted, we lie because we want to preserve ourselves, we want to hide certain things. So we sin, so all have sinned. And I must indicate that the most devastating sin in the world is not the heinous crimes that people commit, you know, the, 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 the murder and so on and so forth. We, we label them, we look at them and we say, that guy is a murderer. He's very sinful. When in fact, the Bible says, rather the most devastating sin is the one that we proudly commit. The one that we are very nonchalant about when we hear the gospel of God. It is the sin of not believing in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus has to say about the matter in John chapter 16 verse 8. I'm reading it from the English Revised Version. It says, when the, whole, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will show the people of the world how wrong they are about sin. He will show them how wrong they are about sin. Typically, they look at someone and say, that one is useless. That one, I would never do that. that but they are so wrong because their judgment of what is devastatingly sinful is not in line with what makes someone hell-bound as a result of sin. He says he will convict them about righteousness or being right with God and about judgment. He will prove that they are guilty of sin because they don't believe in me. So you have to be convinced before you say, I want to be born again. Be convinced that you are sinful. Number two, be convinced about the fact that the penalty of our sin, your sin, my sin, is death. Romans 6 verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God through Christ Jesus is life. Listen to what Romans 5 verse 12 says. I'll read it 
to verse 13. It says, sin came into the world because of what one man did. And with sin came death. So this is why all people must die, because all have sinned. Sin was in the world before the law of Moses. But God does not consider people guilty of sin if there is no law. If there is no law, which means if there is no awareness of sin as sinful, then judgment is not brought upon them. Um, but our crisis is this. Is that there is the law of the conscience that came with eating of the knowledge of good and evil. Our consciences either justify us or they condemn us. You, you know when someone asks you something like, is it wrong to... You almost know that in their heart, whatever follows after their two, it's something that they almost always know it's wrong. Why? Because the law of their conscience tells them it's wrong or it's right. And if that be the case, then, then our, 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 our guilt and the penalty due to it is justified. You also need to be convinced, and this is the beautiful part, that Jesus Christ died to pay for that penalty of our sins. So the penalty is justified. The good thing is someone has already paid for it. You know, we read, let's continue reading in Romans 5, taking it from verse 6 this time to 10. It says, Christ died for us when we were unable to help ourselves. We were living against God. But at just the right time, Christ died for us. Very few people will die to save the life of, a, of someone else, even if that person is a good person. Someone might be willing to die for an especially good person. I like that one. But Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And by this, God showed us how much he loved us. We have been made right with God by the blood and sacrifice of Christ. So through Christ we will surely be, sa be saved from God's danger. I mean that while we were God's enemies, he made friends with us through his son's death. And the fact that we are now God's friends makes it even more certain that he will save us through his son's life. The fact that he saved us, Christ made us friends. God will continue to save us because of Christ. For as in Adam, or in Adam, we all die. But so, also in Christ, we also shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 22 tells us that it tells us that we will be it's, it's a very fair thing if we, talk, we want to talk about fairness in Adam we die in Christ we live the assurance therefore is this is that when you are not born again maybe you, you, you can be thinking you 
this thing that I'm doing will certainly get me to die, to end up in hell. Sure, it will, if you don't change. But here's the assurance. If you confess Jesus as Lord, realizing your need of him, realizing that on your own you are already out of order, you need some external order, you are in a place where you can't drive your own life, you need Jesus to come. When you come to that place of acknowledging that I'm actually a mess, I need someone to clean up, then you can recognize Jesus as fully qualified, fully willing, ready, and already having done what you need. You just call him into your life, you invite him into your life, and he cleanses the mess, not just the mess, but he cleanses you up. He makes you a new creation. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. What does that mean? The mess has been cleansed, but even the person has been renewed. So you, you, you are not expected to go back to the same mess. Because now you are a new creation. It says, Now behold... All things have become new. You know, and, and many of us are confused about what is our role in salvation. So many people still think prayers will save me. The rosary will save me. Sprinkling water will save me doing the anointing oil will save. No, no, these things don't bring you salvation. You know? And so, I want us to look at some of the people that have also gone through that. If, if, if you, you read in Acts chapter 8 from verse 26 to 40, I won't read it. There's a story of, of the eunuch that is a very good example of a man who had to find out what was his role in being saved and what was Christ's role. And, I, and, 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 and so, let me tell you the story. This man is reading in Isaiah 53. He's reading about the passion of Christ, how Christ was to suffer, how he, he was counted amongst the, 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 the thieves and the robbers and so on and so forth, how he bore our sins, how he was chastised on our behalf. And, and the Holy Spirit speaks to Philip. He says, you know, get closer to that chariot. Listen to the man. So Philip gets there. He says to the man, do you understand what you are reading? The man says, mm, how can I understand when nobody is explaining this thing to me? So the Bible says, starting from there, because the man asked the question, is this writer talking about himself or somebody else? So in other words, he's saying, is Isaiah talking about himself or about Jesus? Put within our context, at least we understand that now. So Philip explains, Philip explains it. The Bible says he starts from the book of Isaiah, he unfolds the mystery of God's plan for salvation. Who's this eunuch? He's from Egypt. He's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. But now, he's brought into this place of assurance that 
Salvation is even for the Gentiles, even for the eunuchs, if you know what I mean. Let's leave the issue of the eunuch and his condition. But the point of the matter is, he gets to understand that so I can be saved. How do I get saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess him as Lord. You will be saved. He says, well, now I understand. What's the next step? The next step is to be baptized. So why can't I be baptized? Baptism is for those who have believed, those who have, 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 have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. Hence, we, we have to separate it from other connotations, which I don't want to get into. It's the, the baptism of believers. So he, he, he gets saved. He's baptized. What does that tell you? This man was a religious man who was unsaved. If you read the story carefully, it says he came from, from, from Jerusalem to worship. He, so he went, he worshipped, he came back out of the worship service unsaved. What about the Samaritan woman? Jesus tells her, you worship what you know not. So, worship, still unsaved. Go to church, still unsaved. What about Nicodemus? Nicodemus was a teacher of the law. He was a theologian of the day. Great theology, still unsaved, hell-bound. What about Cornelius? Cornelius was a devout man. The Bible says he gave to the poor. He prayed, still unsaved. So you can be devout. You can be a churchgoer. You can read your Bible. You can go through the religious movements. You can go through the liturgy of it all. But being devout. So these are the people that are just examples for you and me to remember that in as much as we want to believe that I'm good because I go to church, I'm good because I'm not like so and so, I'm good. And, and you know, sometimes you look at Christians and say, I'll never be like that. I won't be a Christian because, just like Mahatma Gandhi said, that if it were not of Christians, I would be Christians. Uh, that's fine for a good, bad, dangerous, self-destructive, hell-bound excuse to make. Because even after that, even after you've seen the wrongs that you use an excuse for not being saved, you still remain saved, uh, unsaved after that. So what you say, uh, no, pastors do this and this. No, Christians do this and this. No, it doesn't matter. What matters is, after all your explanations, your excuses, you are still not saved. Let us continue. Um, salvation, it is a term that we generally use to mean rescuing someone. You know, it's easier to understand that way, that you are being rescued from an imminent danger, 
from so you can think of salvation as God rescuing us from every other thing that is contrary to his plan for our lives for our destinies God has not destined us for hell he has destined us unto himself and so salvation addresses itself to being rescued from anything that God did not plan for us it it is a it is God's way of ensuring that the plans he has for us the plans to prosper us to give us a future and a hope are actually intact we can experience this salvation in three tenses in other words salvation is an ongoing process we can experience it as a past tense meaning we have been saved and that talks of that moment when we were saved when we first put our trust in god when you were at that moment it, it, it doesn't have to have been at church it may have been in your room that distinct and definite moment when i knew that when you knew that i surrendered my life to god many people have are saved but had not been to church there's a story that i read of an indian guy who went into a, an indian temple and he saw all these images and pictures and what and he looked at all of this and i thought no that can't be god and so he left the temple in despondency he climbed the mountain and he sat on a, on a rock and he shouted he said god if you are out there i know inside there that's not you none of those look like they can save me but if you are out there save me i accept you into my life he didn't know who he was talking to and suddenly he was flooded with a sense of renewal a regeneration a, sense, a deep sense that i'm a child of god and daily he in his devotion he just addressed god as father as god and one day he attended a conference where jesus was preached that jesus is lord that in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and the word became flesh and he dwelt amongst us and we beheld this glory the glory of the one and only begotten of the father full of grace and truth and he started hearing about how god in jesus manifested his love and so and was the way still preaching just about to make an altar call you know how we we always try to coax people prepare their hearts he was already in the front he was shouting and dancing and the preacher stopped him he says what he says man i have not i have known god for so many years i have been praying to god for so many years he has loved me has shown me so many nice things but i've never known his name today i'm excited i know his name his name is jesus and it was just just that moment so he, he didn't get born again at church he got born again somewhere in the bundu somewhere in men's sense why because he has a heart that can believe and he had a mouth that he could confess that god come into my heart and so there, there is just that moment when we get born again and and, and and that moment becomes 
our past tense. Romans 8, speaking of that moment, verse 16, it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 5, verse 9 says, Being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved through him. We'll come to that uh, place. You know, so your past tense could, as I had just alluded, be someone's present tense. I am saved, and if you have believed in God, this is your past tense. You, you stand redeemed and you say, I am saved. And for someone else, that would still be what is yet to come or what will be as I speak or maybe when we finish speaking. But for us, we're experiencing it as past tense. But we also experience salvation in the present tense. In Colossians 1.18, it says, To us who are being saved, Christ is the power of God. So we are being saved perpetually from love, from the love of sin, from the love of pleasure, from the love of the world. God continually disinfects our lives from the pollution of sin, from the pollution of the lust of the flesh, the lust of eyes, and, 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 and the pride of life. We, we are told we are being saved by his life in Romans 5.10. If you read Philippians 1, it says, For we are confident that he who began a good work. So he began a good work. What will he do? He will continue to do it and then will bring it to completion in the day of Christ. So we get saved. But God continued to work sanctification in us. He works in us to desire more and more of him. He works in us to want to please him more. Some of us, when we got saved, every second word of our speech we was F, S, S. Now we are forgotten by that. Now we speak. We can speak without swearing. We can speak without, you know, uh, diminishing the value of other people there are things that god continues to save us from just as it are said in 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 the same book of philippians in chapter 2 from verse 12 to verse 13 it's it speaks of the fact that now we must now work out our salvation with fear and trembling for it is god who works in us to will and to act according to his Good pleasure. So the whole process of God removing what is ungodly is part of that process of salvation. It's called our sanctification. So you and I must not therefore say, I am saved. And we just leave it at that. We must continually ask ourselves, what does God need to cleanse from me? And am I willing to be cleansed from that am i willing to disconnect from that habit you know we we have people that are saved they are caught in in pornography in sexual immorality in different addictions others still smoke others are still drunkards are they saved past tense yes they are saved do they still need to be saved yes 
from these things that are now holding them hostage. And if you, if you want to, if, to bear with me, listen to what Hebrews 10, 14 says. It says, for, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. You see, it says, by one single offering of his sacrifice, Jesus has perfected those that are being made holy. So when we come, we are perfected before the Father. But as we continue, we are being made holy. We are being sanctified. We are being saved. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, speaking of Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who, who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So why would Jesus make intercession? He lives, he lives continually to make intercession for us. Why would he intercede for us when we don't need it? He intercedes for us because each day we need to be continually renewed, continually saved. Our resolve must be met with repentance to live right. In marriages, for, for, for husbands and wives to say, I'm, I, I'm married to this person, but sometimes I feel unloving towards him or her. And sometimes, how can I be saved from these emotions? Then we surrender to God in businesses, the love of money, in, in the whole of life. We need to be, there are things you and I continually need to be saved from. And so as a present reality, we continue to be saved from that. And in the future tense, we, 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 we are being kept by God's power for the ultimate salvation of our souls. The Bible talks of what we are. If you, if you read in, 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 in 1 John, it says, Behold, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has given us, that we may be called the children of God. What we are is not yet revealed, what, or rather what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. So in one sense, yes, we are like Christ inside. We are glorified. But if you look at our bodies, we have dying bodies. We have imperfect knowledge. We have imperfect everything. But when he appears, we shall be like him completely. We shall hunger no more. Neither shall we die. All these things. He shall wipe every tear from the eyes, our eyes. Paul speaks of that reality. He says, when I was young, I, you know, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I spoke like a child, but I matured. So in the past, I got saved. I was a child of God. I matured. I became a young man in God. The word of God lived in me. I became a father to others. I knew my father and I began to live from a place of maturity, knowing how, how to exercise my will towards what is good and what is right. But still, I am trapped into this body of death. He says, then, when he appears, this body, this mortality will be clothed in immortality. And 
I will know completely. He says, in our spirituality, we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes in the future, we shall know as we are known. Listen to what Romans 11, Romans 13, rather, verse 11 says. Romans 13, 11 says, And this, knowing the season, that already it is time for you to wake up out of sleep. It says, for now is salvation nearer to us than when we first believed. You hear that? Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. What, what salvation is he talking about? Future. It says, when we first believed, we were saved. But now, saved past tense, now... We are still saved and being saved, but in the future, our salvation is even nearer. And what would this salvation constitute, that, that future salvation? Obviously, perfection of all things pertains to our being. We are perfected in our spirit. We are not perfected in our soul area. We still know in part thinking. We are not perfected in our body. So we will... A perfection of all of that will come with our final glorification, our final salvation. Listen to First Corinthians reading from chapter 15. I'll take it from verse 50. It says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which means we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. So change is for everyone. Some may have died. Some, when the Lord Jesus comes on his second advent, on his return, some will still be here. They will be taken in and thinking of an eye. They will be like him. Our future salvation. It says... I tell you a mystery. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. Now listen, it says, for this corruptible, meaning the body, I can extend it to the mind, because the mind efficiency Three and four tells us when you read those chapters, it tells us that we need to renew our mind. If you go to Ephesians 4 23 to 24, that this mind continues to be corrupted if we are allowing the sinful men to continue to influence our thinking. So that's why I'm saying I can extend that to the mind. This corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal, this dying, decaying body must put on immortality. But when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So which means when death is no longer a bodily issue for us, when our thoughts are not deadly, 
when we are no longer God's enemies in our thinking, when our bodies are not subject to sickness and diseases anymore, when we have that celestial body that Jesus had, then our future salvation has come. And so the assurances that I'm talking about, firstly for the person that is not born again, is the fact that you can, you should, you must, and if I may say, you will be saved if you put your trust in Jesus. There is no lockdown on being saved. You know, Jesus is not on leave from uh, saving people. The work of the cross for the salvation of men has been for over 2,000 years essential services. Whilst people are offering essential services now temporarily, Jesus has given essential services long time ago. And so we run around for, I want food to eat. I want all these things that we need are temporary. But the assurance of your eternal salvation when you put faith in Christ Jesus in his death and resurrection and you entrust your life to break the chains of sin, of the power and the pollution of sin and the corruption of sin unto holiness. If you, you submit all of that into him, don't be scared that, yo, I know I was scared and most people are, yo, if I say I want to be saved, what if I still sin? Of course you still sin. That's not the point of salvation. That when you are here on earth, you won't sin. No, that's not true. Go and read 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. You know, it tells you unequivocally, it tells you blatantly that whilst we are here on earth we will continue struggling with sin first john chapter 1 verse 7 he says but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of jesus his son purifies us from all sin now if we claim verse 8 to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us verse 9 if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and he will forgive us. Our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in us. My dear children, I write, that is chapter 2. My dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father. It says, when we sin. So that means we will sin at, at one point. So when you accept Jesus Christ, you are perfected in the spirit, but you are not perfected in your soul area and in your body. But because the law of sin lives in the flesh, you will always desire to sin. And sometimes when 
maybe the temptation overcomes you or you were not careful enough, you will stumble and fall. But the Bible says, when that has happened, confess your sins, repent, he will cleanse you. So from that place then, we are assured of the fact that we are perfected in the spirit, but we are also assured that even though we are not perfected in our bodies and in our minds and we still mess up, God does not withdraw his salvation. God, when we confess, he cleanses us. So what is the assurance right there? When you think of how the devil plays with our minds sometimes, we know somewhere in the back of our minds, I'm saved. Then you do something wrong. And then you hear a voice. How can you even dare declare yourself a Christian doing this and that and that and that? When you come to church and there's worship and people are crying in the presence of God, you have your hands lifted up. But you are condemned, you wish, oh Lord, please, please, please forgive me, oh Lord. What I did yesterday, I won't do it again, oh Lord, please, oh please, Lord, I, I did it for the last time. You don't have to promise God that you will do it for the last time. God, you just have to confess your sins and God will, in his righteousness, in his faithfulness, wash you. You don't have to be put in a place of condemnation where you start believing that acceptance in God depends on competence. Now I need to compensate for my sins. I need to serve more diligent. I need to, no, no, no. You don't have to do anything. You have not earned that salvation. And as I said, don't promise God that you won't do it alone. That's a trap you put for yourself for the devil to push you and tempt you more. You, you know, I have said before, it's like, Inviting God to a bride, you know, you have a barbecue with God and you say to God, Oh God, don't worry about the meat, I'll take care of it. And God says, okay, no problem, I'll show up on Friday. And on Thursday, he takes away all his animals because they belong to him, you know. The cattle on a thousand he belongs to God. You're looking for, you go to the butcher, there's no meat. Anything that is meat is God's, he's taking it. So God rocks up and you come as well, you say, mm, you know what, Lord? There was just a glitch. I, um, I had a problem, some technicality. Can we do the bride next time? You know, I couldn't get the meat and God says, okay, no problem. I will come next week. It doesn't matter how many times you promise God you will bring the meat, you won't have the meat. So stop promising, stop saying, I won't do it again. It is by grace, through faith, that we are saved. Put your faith in God to cleanse you. Put your faith in God. Don't hide. Yes, you hide things from people. We all have things we hide. But when it comes to God, put it all there. In any case, it's already bare. Nothing is hidden from God. So let's, 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 let's conclude by just admonishing, encouraging you, and if it were possible, pleading with you 
Let's plead with a child of God. Child of God, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged. It doesn't matter how many times you mess up. I'm not saying we should mess up. I'm telling you that when sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Let's not, because of overemphasis from one extreme to the other extreme about grace, let's not forsake grace. We are saved by grace. We need grace. Salvation is the act of God's grace. Past tense, act of God's grace. Present tense, overcoming stuff, act of God's grace. My grace is sufficient for you. Future, act of God's grace. We, we cannot make ourselves any better. People have done, they've tried Botox, they've tried surgery, they still get old. Only our final salvation will bring to us bodies that are, 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 are incorruptible, that are immortal, that I believe will be even more proud of. So also let me bring an encouragement once more to the one who says, I want to be saved, but, but you know, there's this, there's that at home, they don't believe in being saved, they believe in other things. At home they will disown me, my friends will laugh at me. A lot of stuff happens when you are going to be saved. You might be disowned, you lose friends. Remember, this is the message of life and death. It's equally a message of the foolishness of man vis-a-vis -vis the wisdom of God. Man thinks God's way of saving us is foolishness. That's why the message of the cross is foolishness. But listen to this admonition. If you say I want to be saved, I'm reading for you from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm reading from verse 1. And verse 2 it says, As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor for the sinner and for the saved. Now is the day of God's salvation. In your heart, just ask God, you know, to give you the assurance that you are a child of God despite the condemnation that you are feeling as a child of God. And that God will prepare your heart for the glory of his coming. That the Bible says what kind of manner of people should we be when we anticipate the Lord's coming. It says we must be holy and pure people. So seek holiness as you anticipate your reward when Jesus comes. In a similar manner, if you are not saved, this is a ripe time and a right time for you to make things with God. So let me pray for both groups, won't you just join me in prayer? Firstly, we'll pray for the one who says, I want to be saved. I want to be a child of God, for my name to be written. For me to stand acquitted for God, to escape the second death and eternal destruction. You are the person I want to pray for. The one who says, I want to be born again. Heavenly Father, 
I thank you for the people that are listening. Right now, I pray that you stay in the hearts of those who want to be saved, to believe that Jesus came and he died and he was resurrected, that they will believe that in their heart and that they will confess them. So right now, as I pray, if you are watching, want to be in my heart that God raised you from the dead that I may be saved and I understand that there are no other prerequisites but that I forsake my sin of unbelief that I repent of that sin of unbelief and as I confess you as Lord I will be saved also I have heard that I won't be perfect but you will continue to work with, within me and through me. Therefore, Lord, I put my life in your hands for sanctification, to be made holy, to overcome the sins that are besetting my life that I'm struggling with, in Jesus' name. And for the one child of God who has lived in condemnation, be assured that God knows your struggles. I want you to pray and say, Lord Jesus, I've been struggling with this particular sin. You may mention it in your heart if you are alone and you, know, you can mention it loud if you choose to. But Lord, I've been struggling with this sin. I've been struggling with condemnation. But today I throw myself again at your mercy, at your grace, at your unconditional love. Your mercy is new for me. Your grace is sufficient for me. Your love is unconditional. I throw myself to you. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And let me live knowing that Christ is able to save me to the uttermost. I put my life in you for my final salvation, wearing in corruption and immortality. I anticipate with holiness the coming back of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit.